This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending June 18th. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. This week, the Fed began to step away from the pandemic-driven monetary policy and moved up the timeline for interest rate hikes, saying these are signs of confidence in the economic recovery. Economic data was mixed this week. Retail sales dipped in May as consumers pivoted their spending dollars to restaurants and entertainment. Initial unemployment claims were a surprise miss, and prices that suppliers charge businesses rose again in May. Manus, Fed policymakers now expect to make two interest rate hikes by the end of 2023, and despite Fed Chair Powell's playing down the significance, the markets definitely took notice. Well, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it, that for the last two months, we've been talking about inflation and the Fed perhaps being behind the curve. We see this language come out, which I don't think is dramatic, right? We're only talking about 50 basis points in all likelihood by the end of 2023. This is not um, the parting of the Red Sea when it comes to you know, surprises, yet the markets react with additional volatility, right? There's a sell-off that comes out of this But the immediate aftermath, all the quote unquote experts and talking heads say, well, we were kind of expecting this. Well, if you were expecting this, then there wouldn't have been a sell off, right? And it was so measured as to be imperceptible in my mind, right? 50 basis points over the next 18 months. So something doesn't add up, right? People weren't really expecting this with Wednesday's announcement. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been this big dip in in stocks, which kind of, you know, spilled over a little bit into Thursday and we saw some volatility on the 10 year. So um, I I think it was the right move by the Fed to get in front of this. I think what we're going to see in the next, um, you know, month or two is more indications of tapering. I I think they have to get ahead of this after last week's CPI number. And I, I think it's a good start. It puts people on the track that their accommodative stance while still being accommodative for, for at least the next year is a little bit less so. And I think, I think the markets had to hear that. Yeah. Thinking about, thinking about, thinking about his now, now there's two thinking abouts instead of three, you know, a couple months, there'll be one. And then eventually I'm waiting for them to drop the bomb of we're going to start reducing bond purchases. Cause that would be, you know, that the last time they did that, there was a, there was an issue right in the market. So uh, with the taper tantrum. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how that goes. I will give a personal anecdote real quick. I have some large expenses coming up soon. So yesterday I was just going through some of my stock stuff and just selling off kind of pieces of stuff. You know what I mean? Just kind of taking it down a notch. And I wasn't even really putting two and two together that the Fed announcement was coming out. I mean, I knew that, but I wasn't really thinking about it. And my last sale was at like one. 48 and the Fed announcement came out at two and everything kind of went down a percentage point or two. So, you know, every now and then you just get lucky by, by dumb luck, you know, but I wish I could have that type of uh, foresight, like consciously instead of subconsciously. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Right. Isn't that the sports cliche, <laughs> right? And yes. This week you were lucky and it right, saved you a few bucks. So you know, it was, it was an interesting week. We talked about the Fed stuff already. The retail sales miss, right, was the other side of the coin, which 
uh, people were expecting modest growth in retail sales. Bank of America and, and Zero Hedge has been covering this. I was going to say, is anyone even looking at the retail number anymore? Or are they all just looking at the Bank of America number? I mean, those guys, they, they've really run the table, right? For the last five or six months, really hitting this right on the head, calling for big surges when the market wasn't anticipating it, um, calling for misses when the market wasn't anticipating that. They did it again this month. So for those that don't get Bank of America's research directly, Zero Hedge does a really nice job of pointing it out and highlighting it. And if you're wondering where the next retail number is going to come from, Bank of America via Zero Hedge is a, is a good place to look. But it is the other side of the coin, right? On the one side, we had PPI and, and CPI come in hotter than expected and, and so forth. And here we have the retail sales number disappointing. And some people chalking that up to all this stimulus having, quote unquote, pulled forward future sales, right? Which could mean that, you know, for anywhere from home purchases to durable goods and everything in between, people have used that stimulus check and kind of burned their, their liquidity a little bit, which could mean that there's, there's more disappointments on uh, sales and activity in the future. You know, it remains to be seen. Um, but they are conflicting data points, one which supports maybe this transitory nature, right? The disappointing retail sales and, you know, the other saying, maybe it isn't so transitory, right? The Fed saying, yeah, maybe we, we might want to hedge on this and get in front of this. We did see lumber futures come down pretty nicely, which is, I think, a good thing for the overall housing market in the medium term. Yeah, and on the on the spending, I mean, everyone has their wave runner, their ski do, and their uh, pool, and their you know new Trex deck, and all that other stuff. So now what? There was a data point or two in here that that Martha had pointed out. So Yelp bookings, this is basically reservations at restaurants, essentially, right? Are ahead of their pre-pandemic levels in almost every state in the U.S. except for New York. They reported 3.7 million diners in May, up four percent from May of 2019. So I actually think that's 48%. I think it's that high from 2019. That's why that number is alarming. And so the question is, are there really that many more diners or are more restaurant owners using online uh, services to get people seated, to have contactless menus, to have them pay? So we need Yelp to give us a same store sales analysis. Exactly. Come on, Yelp, get on it. Either way, I think it's positive, right? People are getting out, you know. I love seeing those pictures of uh, the beaches just like filled with college kids. <laughs> the pictures that everybody was condemning a year ago, now everyone's happy about them. Yeah, I think it'll be a little bit more nuanced, you know, the recovery that we see over the rest of the summer. I think restaurants are going to do extraordinarily well just based on my own anecdotal evidence, I think that they're bigger than they used to be because they, they've retained this outdoor seating and now people are going back inside and people really want to get out. And it seems like people are out. They're watching these NBA playoff games. They're participating in trivia. I think that will be really robust. I, I think like you're saying, Joe, the beaches will continue to do well, which you know bodes well for the kind of the, the staycation, the Jersey Shore, Cape Cod, things like that. You know, on the other side of it, people have been expecting this extraordinarily robust recovery for places like 
Las Vegas and Orlando and so forth. And I think Las Vegas has seen extraordinary rebounding thus far. But you have to understand that we're now almost halfway through the summer, right? That kids start going back to school for colleges, you know, August 1st, August 15th. In the South, they go back to junior high school and elementary school and high school by middle of, of August. So to the extent that, you know, people haven't done it yet, you know, that might disappoint, right? These family vacations to faraway destinations may be the kind of thing that that is still uh, a year away, right? But I do think that, you know, that travel to places that you can get to easily late in the summer, uh, I think that will still do very well as it's done relatively well thus far in the uh, the last year. I know I've been teasing it for several weeks, but next week you guys are going to hear the... Odysseus-like journey that I take with my family on a plane down south. I'll give you on-the-ground recon on what's going on in the airports and how heavily they are administering the mask rule on my two-and-a-half-year-old son, who's going to be smacking you in the face if you ask him to wear a mask. Something tells me that you may not have to wait till next week's podcast for this. Like I could, I could picture Joe. You may being, see it on World Star Hip Hop or TMZ or something. I'm just thinking, you know, like on YouTube, maybe you know, Joe with those, you know, what do they call those things that they put around your wrists, like the the hand ties, you the know, zip that ties. You're being uh, frog walked off the plane while your kids are screaming, "Where's Daddy going?" We're loading up on fruit snacks and. Elmo and Curious George and Toy Story on the Kindle. So we're never like those parents that just hand them an iPad and give them headphones, but on the plane, that's what we're doing. So Crepsi held its annual meeting virtually again over the last two days. And we always think this event's valuable, not just for the sessions, but to be able to hear what people are talking about in the industry. What were some of the conversations you guys heard that you felt were worth sharing? I think there was a lot of optimism uh, in general. I think people felt great that the carnage that we felt over the last year wasn't worse. You know, a lot of these people had lived through the great financial crisis where the carnage on the derivative side, on the bond loss side, on the mark to market side, and everything in between was catastrophic, right? It cost people, uh, in some cases, their their assets on the commercial real estate side. It cost some people their jobs because their banks went out of business. There was an awful lot of pain. And I think the fact that we've come out of this as well as we did had people feeling good. I think that there was an awful lot of attaboys and attagirls going around that the market came together to come up with new standards so that there was transparency. Uh, there was creativity in terms of turning off the REMIC rules or suspending them for a while using FF and E reserves for purposes of, you know, the, the soft forbearances. I, I think the market really reacted very well, very professionally. And, and I think there's a lot of good to be felt about it. Um, I feel like the biggest unknown at this point remains office. I think that I've heard this more than once where people were saying, anybody that can tell you how we're going to come out of this office situation, whether it's going to be good or bad, is really just putting their finger up in the air at this point. And I think that that's true. So anything we say from now on about office, just know that on the video, I have my finger up in the air. <laughs> there you go. You know, I, I, I think it was, it, it was a feel good conference. And I think that rightly so.
Yeah, a couple of other notes just from the field. A lot of uh, positivity about the CRECLO market and how that could be, that's going to be, you know, a banner issuance year this year, uh, probably the highest issuance ever. I saw a note or two about, you know, some of the positives of the CLO structure and maybe, um, you know, bringing those over into the, the conduit space. I'm not sure how uh, doable that actually is. A few kind of notes about how many forbearances and deferrals there were and how many of them have come out and are doing okay. So really very, very positive. You know, cap rate, a couple of notes here, cap rate compression is not slowing down. A little bit eerie when you hear such like unanimous positivity. That's always when you get a little worried, but like, you know, listen, here we are. We got the Fed backstop. We got trillions of dollars in government spending. We've got people dying to get out. Uh, and spend money. So um, and we do have a lot of liquidity. Let's let's yeah. face it. There's a lot of money out there uh, to be put to work. I think that's one of the reasons that distress has not um, been worse than it could have been. And, and that was something that was brought up by some people in the cocktail hours and, and, and so forth. You know, I, I would say that in 2007, when, you know, right before we we drove the Cadillac into the brick wall, it's, you know, there's a lot of people saying, this is kind of crazy. Where does this end, right? Pro forma lending. There's people out there like Tad Phillip that, you know, of Moody's that were, was just kind of ringing the bell, like this is getting a little nuts. And, and I think there were people at Trep feeling the same way that valuations, lack of skin in the game, uh, synthetic CDOs, all those things were canaries in the coal mine. And I think that right now, there's nobody saying that, but I think in a good way because there are no real canaries in the coal mine right now, right? We're not talking about excess leverage. We're not talking about pro forma lending again. We're coming out of this kind of on pretty firm footing and that's a good thing. It's funny you mentioned Tad Phillip. I think my father-in-law got paired up with him in a public golf course in Connecticut like a few months ago and they got to talking and the guy said yeah, that he worked at Moody's and my father-in-law said, do you know Trep? And he's like, I, of course I know Trep. He didn't know me, but of course he knew you, Manus. You're famous. Well, I'm not famous, but I've, I've been around a long time, which is <laughs> two different things. And, you know, I always had a lot of respect for for Tad because, you know, he was a guy that, uh, you know, the, the rating agency business is predicated on, you know, volume. If volume stays high, they get paid. And, and as long as the conveyor belt keeps going, that's a good thing. Uh, and here was a guy with the integrity to say, you know, somebody's got to say the right thing to do here is walk away. And it probably didn't serve the business well, but it probably served them very well reputationally. And it kept them from uh, having bigger problems throughout 2008 to 2010. So, you know, you got to have respect for guys like that, that, that can, can, can call out when they think the emperor has no clothes as the market did in 2007. What I'm going to be interested in, just kind of going back to office for a second, is, and I haven't done this yet, but maybe I should, looking at new originations in office and checking out the types of rollover reserves that lenders are requiring at this point. And I did see that in you know some of the CREFC sessions, there was talk about how reserves and how much reserves are required are kind of decreasing because the market's kind of coming out of this tough time. But, you know, that might tell you how the lenders are viewing the rollover risk, you know, and I would assume anyway that it has, I mean, if you're looking at this rationally, you have to think that the rollover risk is 
significantly higher than it was pre-COVID. Yeah, and, and it's one thing will be interesting, and it is kind of one of these things that can bite you, you know, uh, on the leg unexpectedly <laughs> in the CMBS upper market. leg. Not expecting the leg. The upper back leg area. Uh, <laughs> this is a G-rated show, man, and I and I and I I stand by that. But you know, one of the things that has bit investors in the past has been lease terminations. And what you see sometimes is there's a lease to a, you know, a pharmaceutical company or a bank or something like that. And it's of size and it runs to 2028 or 2029, but there's an out in 2023 that is exercised or, you know, or 2021 or something. And all of a sudden that 10 year lease becomes a three year lease. And there's a lot of space that has to be filled and, while this stuff is disclosed in the prospectuses, it's not disclosed in a way that's easy to find. And, and we spend a lot of time looking for these things. And they're not all that prevalent, uh, but they can become nasty stories when they happen. What I'm looking for coming out of that is there, is there a lot more of 10-year leases with a, with a four-year out? Because the guy who made this lease in 2021 said, I don't know what the future looks like, but I want it out in 2025. So I'm not taking on a lot of things. And one of the things we'll be looking for over the next year is evidence of this. And we actually saw some of it uh, recently for a 2019 loan where, you know, we wrote about it in Tripwire this week. I can't recall the story off the top of my head, but somebody got out of it, you know, not long after securitization. They said, you know, we're going we're gonna to exercise this thing and we're going to leave, you know, a 30 or 40% hole there with not a big termination fee. Uh, we may see more of that in stuff that gets securitized this year and next year. Yeah, and there's there's an element to this where some people might say, well, you know, CMBS is a little looser than, you know, bank underwriting or insurance company underwriting. But I would say at the same time, most office leases are not more than 10 years, right? I mean, I think most of them are five, seven to 10 years. Most CMBS loans are 10 years. So you're going to have some significant turnover or at least uh, expiration either during the life of the loan or right around maturity just because of that miss that match of terms of lease and terms of loan. So, you know, that's always a big thing. I don't want to be redundant, but I'll give Don Sheets a shout out because like I said, I'm, I was taking his kind of uh, elective class on distressed debt investing, and it's been absolutely great, I have to say. And I'm not just shilling, I really mean it. And one of the cases we looked at was exactly this. It was a 10-year loan, seven years seasoning, three years left, with a huge tenant expiring like three months after maturity, right? So that it was, it's just all binary risk, right? If they re-sign your money good, if they don't, you know, you have some issues. So I don't think it's necessarily like a bad underwriting thing. I just think it's the nature of lease terms. There's more of this than you would think out there where the dominant tenant or perhaps the only tenant has a lease that expires within a year, longer or shorter of the loan maturity. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's at some point we'll talk about anticipated repayment date loans. We're, we're, we're going to run too long today to get into that. And we'll talk about that maybe in an educational segment down the road. Um, but this, you know, this binary nature of this, and I like that word, um, is there. We just completed our mid-year analysis, which is included in the magazine that we publish with our sister company, CRE Direct News. And it is aptly called the mid-year. Makes a lot of sense. (laughs) 
We're going to walk through some of that analysis and sprinkle in some updates from Tripwire, and we'll go property by property sector, including some data, the good news, the bad news, and maybe what should we be watching for because it's an unknown trapdoor. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been doing these magazines for five years, twice a year. Seven years. You know. Seven years. 2014, Trepwire Analysis and Perspectives, the the very first one. There we go. I remember it fondly. You know, normally it would be available at newsstands everywhere at airports and, you know, commuter rail trains and stuff like that. Seat drop on every uh, Delta flight into Miami in June. (laughs) Because you, uh, because we have COVID, you're not going to find it at your, at your local newsstand this year. But actually we do have this. And uh, for people that are on our distribution list of our free blog material, you'll see some of these stories uh, come through over the next week or two. And if you're not on our list, you can get on that free of charge by reaching out to Haley and we'll get you on there. Our Crack producer, Haley Keen, who does great work for us. But normally over the last seven years, we had segments called the good, the bad, and the ugly, which were backward looking. Uh, and it talked about the good things, the bad things, and the really ugly things that happened either in the CRE markets or life in general. This season or this uh, publication, we replaced it with the good, the bad of the last year and the unknown, which is kind of what we don't really know is going to happen in the market going forward. And we'll run through these property type by property type. So let's start with multifamily. So uh, what did the data show us going into 2020? The delinquency rate was 1.5%. The disproportionate amount of troubled loans came from the student loan sub-segment going into or pre-COVID. Delinquencies did tick up uh, in 2020, but the uptick was really modest compared to things like hotels and retail. Delinquencies peaked at a little over 3% during the summer of 2020. By the spring of 2021, it was back to around 2%, uh, and the percentage of loans with the special servicer never went above 3%. So What was the good? The good was that lending never really slowed down for apartment loans with demand high for safe and relatively high yield fixed income returns, you know, relative to treasuries and other things. Uh, Credit remained available and was plentiful. Uh, Sales volume was strong throughout the pandemic. Valuations remained really high, uh, especially in the low treasury rate environment. Uh, The bad, as we've talked about on this podcast and in Trepwire, Some markets saw some occupancy fall off, particularly things like Long Island City and Queens, other parts of Manhattan and San Francisco. Uh, The unknown we pointed out is with the eviction moratoria rolling off and uh, stimulus checks ending, you know, how will demand change in the second half of 2021? I remain pretty bullish on the market. I think that if anything, it comes back over the second half of the year as people go back to the offices. Yeah, big part of the multifamily obviously is Fannie and Freddie. They just, you know, keep their the gas pedal to the floor um, and continue to lend. And somehow we have, we just haven't seen the, any sort of distress in that market really uh, of any sort of note, even with eviction moratorium and everything else. I'll give you one more good out of that segment. We expected, you know, the student housing segment to get crushed people not going back to school, learning remotely and so forth. And it didn't, it held up extraordinarily well and a really positive story for one that we thought uh, might be a disaster last year. 
just means a lot of parents got gypped out of a lot of money. <laughs> I think parents just sent their kids to school. <laughs> You're it's, going. It's, it's one of the, you know, the costs of doing business as a parent as, you know, I guess your kids now, Joe, are, are two and one. Is that right? Or three essentially, and one? Essentially, yeah. Yeah. So you got a long time before you, uh, you underwrite this college nut. But when it comes, you kind of understand that you set all logical thinking aside. At the current rate, it's going to literally, it's going to be like a million dollars a year. <laughs> if you just extrapolated out the last 10 years and just continued for another 18. So hopefully something happens there. Well, you know, somebody with your, you know, coming from your gene pool, I, you know, I, I expect, you know, there's going to be no shortage of suitors, you know, for your, uh, for your kids, you know, right. intellect. Yeah. So shifting to office, we were talking uh, just a bit about how that is an area that is still uncertain in many ways. Yeah, it's, it's the most uncertain market. You know, the data wouldn't, the data doesn't tell a story. Right, delinquencies were two percent going into the pandemic. Modest increases, but it never got over three percent. And by the spring of 2021, it was back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, special servicing numbers never got above three percent either. Just like with multifamily, um, what was the good? The good was that early on in the pandemic, the narrative was we're going to see a lot of credit problems. Right, tenants defaulting on their leases in the oil segment. Uh, the kind of borrowers that would tap into the CLO market, not the CRE CLO market, but those double B, single B, and triple C uh, credits in the CLO market that are also tenants and offices, you know, people thought this could be messy as we see big bankruptcy chapter 11 filings of oil and gas and other industrial players that never materialized and it doesn't seem like it ever will. Uh, that was a good part of the story. The bad, a lot of sublet space, but even that is starting to at least peak, if not um, come back. And I think the unknowns we've talked about already, which are, you know, when do people come back and to what degree? You know, that's the good, the bad, and the unknown in office. And I think, Joe, you got some, some specific stories from this week. Yeah, so we had some, you know, specific office stories. One was on the good side. CAA, which is a talent uh, agency out in Los Angeles, signed a large lease, 290,000 square feet at Century Park Plaza. That's according to Commercial Observer. And then on the Trep Wire side, on the bad, if we want to, if I want to steal some of Manus's lines here, the crabgrass. Uh, speaking of grass, you guys got to watch the U.S. Open uh, out at Torrey Pines. The balls just disappear in the rough. Anyway, sole tenant behind a 2017 loan to vacate. So the 13.1 million Verizon building uh, was put on the servicer watch list this month uh, after the sole tenant, which is Verizon, is exercising their termination option. So this is exactly like the thing we were just talking about. So the Verizon lease was originally slated to run until 2026, but now they've exercised an option and their lease will end in December. This is, uh, like I said, a $13.1 million loan. It's in Wilmington, North Carolina. The property was valued at $25 million in late 2016. It's amortized almost down by a million uh, since origination. It's about 2% of a, a 2017 deal, and it matures in 2027. So 
you know, these are the types of stories that you, know, you got to kind of be in the weeds, get it, uh, to find go. these stories. Um, Crabgrass one was 853rd <laughs> Avenue uh, in Manhattan, which went to special servicing. You know, that's a big loan, 177 million. They lost Discovery Communications as a tenant last year. Uh, there was a dispute over how much rent Discovery owed. Uh, we, we talked about that last year, but now that, that loan goes to special servicing with, you know, now a 63% occupancy level, right, down from uh, the 90s last year. That's a single asset deal, and single asset deals very rarely have any sort of distress, at least historically. That's right. Um, there are a couple other data points here on office. So, you know, we've been quoting this company, Castle Systems, a lot, and they've been coming out with a lot of good information, good on them. Right. They, they had something out that said fewer than three out of 10 white collar employees were working at the office on average in 10 major U.S. cities, including New York, L.A., San Fran, D.C. I'll be interested to see what this number is in September. I think it's going to be, you know, five and 10 or six and 10, at least like five day work week. I don't think it's going to be 10, 10 out of 10. And then obviously, you know, you guys saw New York and California lifted their mandates this week, capacity mandates and all those types of things. So, you know, free at last, free at last. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun this summer, I think, in, in all the big cities. We had a must-know in that category. Yes, last week we, uh, we started with a new segment, which we may not do every week. Um, but if we do have something that we consider must-know, we'll throw it out there. So must-know is something oh. that... <laughs> right, if you're in a particular segment and you don't know this or particular geography, you probably should because it's big enough that um, if your boss comes to you and says, you know, what's happening with so-and-so's lease, you don't want to be uh, giving them the humana, humana, humana. So uh, this week's must know, Dun and Bradstreet, they're moving from Short Hills, New Jersey, down to Jacksonville. Uh, they're looking to uh, spend 67 million uh, to bring six, 500 jobs down there. Um, this particular article, I don't remember who wrote it. I wish I had uh, written this down. But this particular author said, Town Center 2 is the perfect structure in South Jacksonville. Uh, that particular building is near the St. John's Town Center property. Would be the perfect building for, for Dun & Bradstreet to take over. So if you're a property owner, if you're a broker, down there, uh, if you're a leasing broker, and either you didn't hear about this story, or you're not responsible for leasing the town center two office, you want to get on this right now, right? You want to get out there and make sure that you're at least in the running for this, uh, this big parcel out there. Turning to industrial, which was a favorite during the pandemic. Not much to say here other than uh, keep on keeping on, right? I mean, the, the delinquency rate before the pandemic was under 1.5%. It blipped up slightly, but just barely. It's back down to around that level now. Uh, the percentage of loans with the special servicer never got above 1.3%, and it's under 1% most recently. That's kind of the data, the good Obviously, the demand for these types of assets just continues to be amazingly strong, especially from the likes of Amazon. The bad, nothing other than, you know, how fast can we get these things uh, built and leased up? 
And uh, the unknown, I think, is basically at some point, the supply and demand equilibrium will be reached. It's just a question of when. Uh, so if that's a year from now or six years from now, I will say one thing, which is this may be a Lonnie point that he had mentioned uh, on one of our uh, calls at some point, but that the this entire industry is completely reliant on Amazon demand. And not that Amazon's going anywhere anytime soon, but at some point businesses do change or get regulated more by the government or if there's an antitrust situation or whatever. So like there's a, there's a little bit of that concentration risk in this market, which is really good right now because Amazon is just an absolute juggernaut, but it is something just to kind of think about for the future that, uh, you know, the list of the uh, top 30 companies in the Dow Jones or the S and P from 30 years ago, there's only like one or two of those companies left today. So 20 or 30 years from now, you know, you got to fill out this industrial space, maybe with somebody else. For what it's worth, I still use my Kodak, you know, Instamatic camera where you got to <laughs> drop off the, uh, the film at the place and come back, you know, four days later with your, you know, duplicates. Hotels, one of the sectors that was hit hard early on. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about this issue quite a bit. So I'll really race through it. Um, Pre-pandemic, under 2% delinquent, got as high as almost 25%. That number might have been 5 or 10 percentage points higher had special servicers not given borrowers the ability to tab FF and E reserves. The percentage of loans with a special servicer was over 26% at one point. Uh, at its peak, 70% of loans, hotel loans, were either with a special servicer or on watch list. The good is that uh, delinquencies have declined really, really sharply, and we expect them to continue to decline throughout the second half of 2021. Fewer hotel owners throwing in the towel. Um, and as we said earlier at the top of the podcast, you know, kudos to everybody who worked on kind of coming up with creative ways to come up with relief. You know, the delinquency rate, I think, could really collapse in H2 2021. Uh, the bad, still some soft markets, New York, Houston, Chicago, Portland. Uh, I feel like a broken record on that part of it. Yeah, there's a Bloomberg headline this week. New NYC hotels are ready to party as guests slowly start to return. I liked one of the lines in there. I don't have it pasted here, but it was something like, yeah, you know, we used to have people jumping in the pool naked at two in the morning. And like, I feel like we're going to get back there soon. <laughs> so I guess that's a good, uh, you know indicator of uh, return to normal. We did have one story this week specific to CMBS. The Gansevoort Park Avenue Hotel is back with the special servicer. It's a $124.2 million uh, hotel loan in Manhattan, 249 key full service hotel in Midtown South. It's been delinquent a few times early in the pandemic. It got some relief. It was able to tap reserves. It was struggling even before the pandemic. So it had DSCRs in 2019 below one, uh, even when the occupancy was fairly high at 89%. So interesting story. There's a couple of pieces of that loan in two 2012 deals, one of which is in CMBX 6, which we talk about a lot. So it was appraised at 258 million back in 2012, which was a 50 LTV. So even if it did have a reappraisal lower, there's a lot of room to move there. Just wanted to keep your eye on there. So, you know, in the last uh, week or so, we finally had 
2 million air travelers for the first time since before the pandemic. And we have not seen that in a long, long time. So that is a sign that there is traveling. And we had an analyst on our team who did some work looking at airport hotels and the impact that people going back to the airlines has to the hotel industry. Yeah, so Jody, who's a great, great person at Trip, she put together a quick piece here. Yeah, the last time we had more than 2 million travelers pre-COVID was March 7th. Uh, so it's been a long time. And just a couple, I don't want to go through the whole thing. You guys can find it on our website. But a couple of key points here is that if we just look at airport hotels, or it's basically hotels kind of near airports, and looking at the change in financial statement items from 2020, or sorry, from 2019 to 2020, revenue per key down 50%, operating expenses per key because they are relatively variable, down 41%, NOI per key down 68, uh, and CapEx down 50. So those are huge decreases. I will just point out a couple of uh, markets here. These are relatively broad because we're at the state level, but we have the ability to, to dive in further in our data. This is just kind of a, a teaser. But in California and New York, I'll just rally, rattle these off, right? So we're doing the classic California, New York versus Florida and Texas. Here we go. 2019 revenues per key, $80,000 in California in 2019, $30,000 in 2020. Uh, in New York, it was 49 in 2019 and 23 in 2020. So around a 50% drop in New York, a greater than 50% drop in California. In Florida, went from 40 to 29, so less than 50% drop. In Texas, it went from 30 to 25. So kind of one sixth there, right? So, you know, just uh, giving you guys a little taste of that. It's really in interesting and important information. And uh, we have kind of a really interesting way of looking at it and slicing and dicing it. So if you're interested in that, hit us up at podcast.trep.com. Let's go right to retail then. So retail, the story is not uh, that unlike hotels. Heading into the pandemic, it was the, the worst performer uh, with delinquency rates between three and 4%. That was largely due to uh, a high percentage of BNC mall loans that were already in default heading into uh, the pandemic. Delinquencies got up to about 18%. Um, it wasn't as uh, high as where hotels were. Hotels were hit across the board, which, which was the reason for its extraordinarily high delinquency rate. In the retail space, there were plenty of pockets of resilience uh, grocery anchored, Walmart, Target, Home Depot anchored, things like that um, were really, you know, terrific performers throughout 2020 and 2021. Even properties that hosted non-essential tenants like Burlington, Coles, Hobby Lobby, Ross Dress for Less, Michaels, etc. Surprisingly resilient. It was really just uh, the BNC malls and, and sometimes the A malls. Uh, would become delinquent that really dominated the bad uh, over the last year. And that still is the case. And unlike hotels where we expect a really robust recovery, um, we don't expect a robust recovery 
uh, in the BNC mall space. We think that more will muddle through than perhaps we thought six to nine months ago, uh, but there'll still be lots of defaults, lots of losses. And uh, just this week, um, Washington Prime Group went chapter 11. We thought this was a possibility as far back as March when they missed an interest payment. Uh, they filed for chapter 11 um, on Sunday night and they have several CMBS mall loans out there. So uh, that story remains to be written. Yeah, so along the lines of some of the payoff report stuff we talked about last week, there was another uh, CMBX 6 mall that uh, failed to pay off at maturity. We talked about it this week. Um, it had been, this is the Visalia Mall, $74 million loan. It had already been extended by one year last year when we wrote about it. Um, it was supposed to mature June 2020, then it got pushed out to June 2021. This month, the loan missed its maturity date. Some of the servicer notes suggest that they may have granted the borrower some more time. So this may not be uh, a terrible uh, turn here. It may just be a little bit of, uh, they need a couple extra months to get a refi done. Although a similar comment was made in July of 2020. So uh, this is a 6.39% of a, a UBS 2012 deal, which is part of CMBX 6. The value of that collateral or that loan actually, which we noted last September, was dropped from 115 million uh, to 86 million. So uh, it's a 440,000 square foot mall in Visalia, California. Uh, it did have a very strong cash flow coverage of 3.25x uh, in 2020. So uh, I assume I, I'd have to look a little deeper. Maybe there's some uh, tenant expirations or some other issues there in terms of, or just kind of capital markets issues in, in terms of getting a refi done. So why does this matter? You know, it's a term I use a lot. Um, you know, we wondered how aggressive special servicers would be in pushing for uh, foreclosures and how quickly these CMBX six loans would resolve, right? Early on, it was thought that the defaults and losses would be accelerated. Um, we had some of our listeners kind of push back on that narrative over the last couple months and say, you know, this is taking much longer than people thought it would. And this is another example to Joe's point of that being true, right? Here, the special servicer was kind of out without batting an eye said, you know, we're going to give you more time, right, to figure this out. And that is uh, detrimental to the shorts who want to see losses. Uh, to the extent there are losses happen quickly, and it is beneficial to uh, the CMBX six longs who can continue collecting premiums as these things stay out longer. So we had one in that category that was under the unknown. Yeah, this is actually not as much unknown as it is oddball in that we did find out what happened here. It was unknown for a while, but we had a enterprising trip sleuth put a couple things together. So the mall at hand is the $58 million Newgate Mall. Ogden, Utah is where the property is, deeply distressed. The property was valued at 83 million at securitization, dropped to 20 million. So this is a uh, not a happy story to begin with, but there was a happy part of it this week when uh, there was a downgrade recently with the downgrade pointing towards uh, a movie theater closing in the mall that represented more than 12% of the space of the collateral space behind the loan. So uh, our sleuth 
uh, and I'm not sure why this happened, but uh, they they went out and went on to Fandango and tried to buy tickets for a June showing of this mall that was supposed to have been closed. And they found out that they could. And the person said, well, maybe this, this movie theater isn't closed after all. So they called the guy at the front desk and said, is the movie still open and is it closing? And the person said, yes. And then he went the extra, extra yard to call up the receiver and say, I just want to confirm that the theater is still open and not closing. And that too was true. So this is just a small beacon of hope in an otherwise miserable story for the Newgate Mall, which is also part of CMBX 6. So we liked, uh, we always like ambitious employees and uh, we got to do something for this guy. I don't know, maybe uh, something more than a t-shirt, like in uh, maybe a nice bottle of wine or something. Maybe some movie tickets. Oh, that would be there funny. we go. At that theater. <laughs> Ogden, Utah. We're going to have to stick him on a plane. And, and we can't even give him wine. That might be a dry, dry town. I don't know. <laughs> Ogden. I know. All right. Shout outs of the week. Let me run through those. Sam M. He likes the podcast. Everything we do. Keep up the great work. Dudley B on Twitter, despite your best efforts, if you listened last week, we did an entire segment on Cecil and we all commented that we were the only ones listening, but apparently Dudley B listened. Only the strong survive. Yeah, you have to be intrepid to make it through that. So good on you, Dudley. Was, and he's not the only one because Vipul M, he said, I was the one listener that stayed on. So at least there were two of them listening and he loved the conversation around Cecil. It's now being repurposed as an interrogation device, right? That last 15 minutes of the podcast being used to, you know- On a loop. Uh, that's right, to- It was uh, somnolescent. Is that the word? I don't Is that know. the right it's way a, of saying it? You know, psychological warfare. <laughs> and, uh, you know, somehow we got Mike B's mom who enjoyed the last episode and had a great suggestion for a cheat sheet for all our banking abbreviations. So I thought that was interesting. And we've already mentioned Don Cheats, who is both a guest and a listener and an instructor and whatever else. The Renaissance man. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, gentlemen, this weekend is Father's Day. Some people might be wondering what to get. Well, I have an idea. You know, the Girl Scouts have about 15 million boxes of unsold cookies. So if you let me know what your favorite type of Girl Scout cookie is, uh, I'll send some contactless delivery to both of you guys. I used to love doing this. It was a little bit of an expensive practical joke that I would do on, on new employees, but you know, they would come in and, and say, would you buy a box of Girl Scout cookies or two? And I wouldn't just buy one or two, I'd buy like nine. <laughs> and they would be incredibly grateful at the time until they realized about two months later that they had to haul this stuff in on the train, you know, on the subway, it, on the bus. <laughs> and if it was somebody I, you know, that, yeah, you know, I hate to say this because they, they might be listening and they might know, but if they got under my skin during that year, I might even go for 15 boxes, <laughs> you know, because you can always get rid of them in the, in the building, give them to the doorman and the people that clean the building and stuff. And they were always grateful. You didn't have to carry it home yourself, but seeing this guy or gal come in with, you know, you know, I think the I know who that is actually under, under that their this. under their arms was just uh, that's so, pretty funny, so gratifying. If uh, so, this weekend I was I stopped at a gas station on the way home from somewhere, and I just had to get a snack. And there were a couple of girls with their moms outside, set up at the table, selling Girl Scout cookies. And I'm like, 
I'm looking at watching all these people. I'm like, if you're the type of person who can walk by this table and not buy at least one box, like, come on, man. Alice. I, I got some Thin Mints. I got some Trefoils, if, that, if that's how you call it. Samoas? No, I'm not a Samoa guy. I like the Samoas. Samoa what? You're killing me, Smalls. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> With that, we'll close. Thank you to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we review what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, you know the drill. Send an email to podcast at trep.com. For more information, visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Happy Father's Day, guys. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.